Welcome to the Worlds of Maybar audiobook podcast. Previously on The New Aleph, Aramis and Paul defended their group in a battle in the Narthex, and then went into Threshold to take them to safety. Meanwhile, Soma continued handing out the arrest lists of soul offender murderers all over Pan. And now, chapter 19 of The New Aleph. Hermes's eyelids were heavy, and her ears were ringing, and the air was thick and warm. She felt sweaty, even with what was left of her pants and coat soaked through with river water and her feet bare. She and the group of people behind her walked down the square stone hallway inside the mountain. The silence and dark were an intense change from the violence outside. She thought about how she was about to say goodbye to Paul for forever. Thinking that made the hallway feel like it had just gone up in temperature 10 degrees. She tried to calm herself and regulate her breathing, but it didn't work. Especially because she started thinking of clever wordings that would force Paul to stay without realizing what she was doing. As she did this, she told herself to stop, but after a few seconds, her mind would wander. His girlfriend was a jerk. Aramis wouldn't force him to be with her. She just wanted him to stay. And once he was free of the distraction of thinking, he wanted to go back to Susie. Stop! A man up ahead of them, dressed all in black, was approaching with three other guards behind him, all of them carrying guns and wearing wine-red cord that was clipped to a shoulder loop and under the armpit of the right arm. The man in front was holding a type of large pistol Aramis had never seen before, blocky and simple and not appearing to have any moving parts. And he had some sort of monocle over his right eye, hanging from a bulky headband. I said stop! The man looked pissed. Aramis stopped. The man charged forward until he was uncomfortably close to her. She could now see that the clunky monocle was made of black ice steel and layers of amber glass lenses so it was probably some sort of magic-detecting display. It looked very expensive. He was wearing an equally expensive-looking pan-style greatcoat, so she couldn't tell if he had vassal tattoos or not. She opened her mouth. We're asking... He held up a flat palm in front of her face without looking at her. A surge of rage shot through her at the rude gesture, but she forced her face to stay calm. The guy looked at Paul and then Vicky, who were just behind her. What did you do to the guards? You have two seconds to give an answer that will make it so I don't kill all of you. Vicky answered. They were murdered by a group of mercenaries trying to leave Pan. I have the entire incident recorded in my keep, and if you want to see, the mercenaries killed two of our own before we removed them. How did mercenaries kill two sub-assembly guards? Hollow poison. Vicky said, pointing at the rash that was still on her neck. Though I don't know how they killed the water pravid you had out there. They must have got lucky. The man spat out a curse, but his flint-hard face didn't really look that upset by the loss of his comrades. He took a second look at Vicky, suddenly recognizing her. You! Your former Aleph, Akmatova, you're not allowed to leave Pan. Vicky opened her mouth to say something 
but Paul put a hand on her shoulder and stepped forward. I'm escorting these people to hail for asylum. Who the hell are you? Paul was handling the man's attitude much better than Aramis would have. She had a headache from her anger over him, shoving his hand in her face, but she kept herself quiet and watched Paul straighten his back out and fold his arms. I'm Aleph Paul Stevens, recently elevated. The guy glared at Paul, looking absolutely confident that he was lying. Prove it. Paul pulled out his counterfeit pen key. He turned on its square holographic display, filling the hallway with blue and red light. Aramis clenched her jaw, staring at Phyllis's artistry carefully, an outline of Paul's head floating above the stylized, angular starburst seal of Maybar. She was terrified that Phyllis might have missed a detail when she designed it, even though she'd spent three days carefully copying the style of the ID holograms in the pens O'Malley had retrieved from the Citadel. The man leaned in and studied the hologram just as closely. I've never heard of you, and those can be faked. Paul drew in a long breath. Let us all go through, or I'll let your boss know about the murder you committed. The air was sucked out of the hall. Five seconds of silence. The man in black was the first to do anything. He frowned and took off the monocle headband and moved a half step closer to Paul. It's a very serious accusation, sir. Paul jerked his head to gesture at the tall woman standing behind the man. And I'll tell them about hers. The woman's eyes widened. She grabbed the man's hand and pulled him back away from the group and away from the third guard who just stood there expressionless. The man in black and the tall woman whispered emphatically to each other with their heads close together. A clear expression of fear on the woman's face. Vicky tapped Paul on the shoulder. So, your wolf nose coming in handy already, eh? Paul nodded. They smell like sulfur and aftershave. I think they work together to murder someone who is keeping them from being together. Maybe her husband. Aramis frowned. How do you know that? I don't know. It's just a really strong hunch. Both of them have the same smell. Aramis looked behind her, seeing Aubrey standing near the back of the long line of the group. Aramis whispered to Paul as silently as she could. Does Aubrey have any smell? Paul shook his head. I think it only works if the murder is premeditated. Vicky chuckled. Cephas must like you. He usually doesn't award abstract, wasted conditions like that. Paul looked down at his hands, catching himself scratching a rash that hadn't yet faded. He forced his hands down at his sides. I have a feeling Ursi has something to do with it. Finally, the man in black grimaced and turned back to Paul, looking defeated and very angry about it. Follow me. Aramis and Vicky moved to the side as the group moved forward, following the guy. Paul looked back at her a moment, but was carried away in the wave of other people. Aramis watched him. Then she looked up at Vicky. Aren't you going? Vicky shook her head. Water girl! The man in black had stopped and was frowning at Aramis. The hell are you doing? We're leaving now! Aramis glared back at him a moment. I'm just the hired muscle. Vicky cleared her throat. I'm staying too. Uh, just a second. Paul pushed through the crowd to get back to Aramis. I forgot something. A rush of irrational hope flooded Aramis as Paul returned to her. The man in black looked incredibly impatient, but didn't say anything. 
Aramis avoided looking at him. Paul walked up to Aramis and dug something out of a coat pocket. He held it out to her. It was half of a pitch-black clamshell. I have the other half. I don't want to lose touch, but I don't know if our watches will work across worlds. And this way, we don't have to worry about anyone eavesdropping. Aramis slowly reached out to take the half, feeling both very happy and furious. As clam halves were what teenage boys gave their girlfriends so that they could write notes to each other without their parents being able to spy on them. It was adorable and inappropriate, but Paul probably didn't know any better. Aramis was almost hopeful enough at this moment to ask Paul to stay. A part of her quickly put together words to say. Another part of her was ashamed and furious with that other part of her for doing so. Paul? Paul frowned. Yeah? The two parts of her somehow reached a consensus. Either that or words just rushed out of her before she could stop them. You should stay. His frown deepened. What do you mean? The whole reason we came here. No, I, um... Aramis frowned and waved a hand, frantically trying to figure out how to backpedal. Her whole body was sweating with embarrassment and shame at treading so closely toward abusing Paul's trust. I'm sorry, I'm just worried about how I'm going to do this. Aramis turned and walked away toward the pan narthex door. She felt everyone watching her, but it didn't slow down. Finally, she heard footsteps behind her, but she knew it was just Vicky. She slowed so Vicky could catch up with her. She turned to her. Brett died to get you in here. Why are you staying? Vicky sighed. Without him, I don't really have any reason to hide anyway. Might as well try and help you stop Detective Dan, considering I helped create her. Aramis stopped. I'm not trying to stop her. Vicky shot her a wink as she continued on past. The irritable guards led the frightened group deeper into Threshold. When they reached an elevator, they took a left away from it and headed down a straight stone hallway. It went down a ways and led to a round room with a fat pillar in the center. Above the wide opening leading into the room was a stainless steel plaque that said, Exit Door Room. The curving wall and the floor and ceiling were stone. The center pillar, however, was covered in doors. Above each door was a tarnished brass plaque. Above each of those was a little lamp shining down on the plaque. Paul could see that the doors probably went all the way around the pillar from those little lamps shining all the way around it. There were probably 10 or 12 doors total. The doors were of varying colors of shaded hardwood, all the same style. Some were covered in peeling paint. Some were darkly stained. The monocle guy came up to the pillar, put his hand on the frame of the nearest door, and shoved on it to send the pillar and the lights it cast spinning. The rumble of heavy metal wheels somewhere out of view under the pillar reverberated in the room. Paul came up closer so he could read the plaques as they rotated by. Noir. Otic. Outside and then several that were hyphenated locations within Pan. Pan-Akela, Pan-Childermas, 
Pan-Citadel, and so on, until it then started showing doors for locations within Prometheus. He should have seen some of the names that had already rotated away coming back around the other side by now, but they weren't. New names kept appearing, over two dozen already, with them passing the end of the alphabet and names at the beginning of the alphabet now appearing. The monocle guy reached out and put his hand on a black door with HAIL engraved into the plaque, stopping the pillar from spinning. A faded purple door labeled Goatee was on its right, and a jade door labeled Jingtu was on its left. The guard turned the door handle for HAIL and the door came open. Within was a short, dark foyer with wooden walls and ceiling. The door on the other side had some snow on the threshold. Bundle up, the guard said as he entered and approached that door. It's cold. He opened the door and a freezing cold wind blew out from it and into the round room of doors. Tiny hard snowflakes battered against Paul's face. Past the door was darkness, and it took a moment for Paul to realize why that felt so odd. It was late afternoon back in Pan. It looked like it was the middle of the night through the door. He stepped through the door and his eyes adjusted. It opened to a courtyard, surrounded by dull walls with snow filling in the corners. The guard gestured for everyone to come through, and Paul got out of the way. They all hunched their shoulders and squinted as they entered the icy wind, but they had just spent several days out living in the cold element, so it wasn't that big a shock. Jules brought up the rear, but stopped before going in. I wish Aramis was coming with us. Paul didn't move. I'm... I'm not coming just yet. What? Paul turned to the guard with the monocle. Process their entry quickly. The guard snorted, but nodded. He didn't like Paul. That was clear. But he seemed to be convinced that he was an Aleph. He ushered Jules through the door, who looked back at Paul frowning. You're going after your other girl, aren't you? Paul nodded. If you were with Aramis, you could come with us, you know. The door slammed shut. Paul walked out of the foyer back into the circle room, and one of the two guards left behind closed the inner door, leaving Paul in total silence. He turned to one of the guards. I'm headed to Prometheus. The guards nodded and walked off to leave Paul alone in the room. Aramis felt that something was wrong as she and Vicky walked out of the maze. Wait, where's Liamhan? Vicky stuffed her hands in her pockets as the two of them looked around vaguely until someone else shouted, Help! Please? Aramis and Vicky ran toward the voice, coming around the side of a short hill to see Liamhan standing a few paces from a man crouched up against a large dead tree trunk. He was well-dressed, and his clothes had the practical straight lines that were a little out of place for West Pan. Liamhan heard Aramis approaching and backed away, keeping an eye on the man. The man stood up and relaxed a little and flashed a bright smile at Aramis. I wanted to talk to you after you got back. Aramis frowned. And you are? Nathan. He held out a hand. Aramis took a couple steps toward him, but then stopped and looked down at the hand. Uh, maybe not just yet. Why do you want to talk to us? I saw the show. 
I also find it interesting that the two of you got through the door and came back. Are you coyotes? Smuggling people out of pan for money or something? Aramis looked back at Vicky. Her hands were still in her pockets and her eyes holding a stone-cold glare at Nathan. Aramis folded her arms. Coyote? Why? You want to be smuggled out or something? Nathan smiled. No, I just want to know why you came back. Well, Vicky interrupted her. He's the one Dan's trying to find. The only person on all her list that she wants brought directly to her. Aramis squinted an eye at Nathan. Really? Vicky walked up to stand alongside Aramis. The wanted flyers say he's a rogue Aleph. Behind them, Liamhan pawed the ground loudly, then lay down in an alert, prone posture. She kept all of the multiple lenses tucked away in the slits of her eyes, fixed on Nathan. He looked apprehensive and unsure. Aramis took another step toward him, then turned around to face Vicky. Why? That doesn't make any sense. Nathan snorted out a laugh behind her. Have you heard what they're offering as a reward? Vicky nodded. A deadbeat pistol. Aramis frowned. I don't know what that is. Vicky stepped forward to stand very close to Nathan. Hopefully you never will. Nathan looked at Vicky carefully. I've seen you before. You were there when Dan blew up. Vicky nodded. I don't remember you being there. Nathan smiled and stuffed his hands in his pockets. So, are you going to turn me over to her? Vicky looked at Aramis, eyebrows high. What do you want to do? I'm not a bounty hunter, and I don't need any weird guns. A grin crept up on one side of Nathan's face. You could sell the gun. For a lot of money. You could use the money to help smuggle more people out of pan. Aramis looked at the ground. That was a good point. But she had no interest in beating up this guy and dragging him to Aleph Dan. Why does Dan want you taken in anyway? Nathan didn't answer, because at that moment, Vicky leaned in very close to his face. He leaned back away from her. Then Vicky stumbled back. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Aramis took a step back, moving alongside Vicky without thinking. What? Vicky gestured at Nathan. He's not just Nathan, he's the Nathan. Ta Sanchez. Aramis chuckled. The rebel god? The one that was killed right after Maybar was created? Vicky nodded, her face humorless. That's stupid, he'd be over 900 years old. No, I wouldn't, Nathan said, looking hurt. Something like 850 or something. Aramis shot him a condescending smile. I've met people over 400 years old. It doesn't matter how much soul space they have. If you're that old, you are covered in wrinkles. Nathan copied her smile back at her. They kept me asleep for eight centuries, obviously. Vicky's expression hadn't changed. This is how the assembly does things. Waits for a bunch of administrative chaos to make a big move. Most won't take notice, but the professionals will still hunt him down for the high bounty. He's the only Ta left with a seat on the assembly. Well, him and Shiro, but his seat is unavailable. All his authorities and powers are his, as long as he's alive, or until he grants them to someone else. I'm building an alliance. Nathan's tone and expression had changed, hardened. You're the only ones that have figured out who I am, though. Irma squinted an eye. Vicky nodded. An alliance to do what? Oh, I'm not telling people that yet. 
other than just getting rid of the assembly. Vicky, Aramis looked over at Liamhan, who didn't look like she trusted Nathan. You could have told me he was seven, and I would have been more likely to believe it. Nathan frowned. Who is this seven person anyway? People keep referring to him, and I keep meaning to ask. It's the name people use today for Jesus. Vicky said it offhandedly. A bunch of people used to think that they'd get persecuted if they used the actual name, so they made up a new one. Now almost no one remembers the real name. Hermes frowned. That's not... That's not the actual reason. So, it doesn't mean Mickey Mantle, Nathan said. That's good at least. Unless you somehow conflated him and Jesus. If more of the Ta had been New Yorkers, I could see that happening. Sorry, I'm rambling. Anyway, I was impressed with you guys. I may send some people to talk with you later. I may come myself. In the meantime, try thinking of ways to humiliate the assembly. And uh, don't tell anyone who I am, please. Aramis chewed on her lower lip as Nathan again put his hands into his pockets. Vicky still hadn't moved. Nathan then smiled big. I'll see you around. And he vanished. Liamhan lurched forward, metal creaking mixed in with growling. Then she turned left and right, searching, finding nothing. Vicky was smiling now. Very interesting. Hey guys, we're almost to the end of the new Aleph. Now, clearly we're not almost to the end of the story. No, no, no. Not even close. The whole time I've been releasing this book, I've been working on writing the second book for this World of Maybar series. I'm not 100% sure when it will be ready for release, but if you follow me on Instagram or Facebook, you are sure to be in the know. I'm also planning on doing a Kickstarter in the next few months for a print version of this book. I'll also be making postcards and posters of the artwork available alongside the book itself in that campaign, so you won't want to miss it for sure. As with most things, I am at a William Wright on Kickstarter, so keep an eye out there and feel free to harass me about getting to getting on all that stuff. So anyway, let's get back to the story. Soma lay on her stomach on her bed, staring at her daughter, Melody, sitting across from her. Melody was sitting on her knees, using the bed as a desk, coloring some giants in a coloring book. She was using an orange crayon. The tall windows showed a bright summer day outside. Melody paused and looked up at Soma and seemed to read her mother's mind. Right and wrong isn't hard, Mama. Soma sighed. It's the hardest thing. Let me show you. Is it right to kill a person to stop them from killing a little girl like you? Yes. Melody returned to coloring. Okay. Is it right to kill them to stop them from killing a thief? Um, yes. I think. Why do you have to kill them? Can't you throw something at them? Soma smiled. It's pretend. Okay. Then yes. Soma perched herself up on her elbows. Now it gets harder. Is it right if they are trying to kill a murderer? 
Melody stopped drawing again and squinted at the ceiling, thinking. Soma, said a calm man's voice behind her. We're here. She opened her eyes, feeling rested and awake, but not lying on her bed anymore. Soma was sitting in a wingback chair in the library of the Galleria. The circular windows showed the large shadows of mountains moving outside. Maybe the spotty lights from a house here or there. She didn't remember falling asleep and had no idea what time it was. Then she remembered that she had just been talking to Melody, and it felt like a cold claw was squeezing her stomach. She looked up and saw Hune standing by her, patient and calm. She took in a deep breath to calm the pain inside her and rubbed gunk from her eyes. Where are we? Wendelin. She nodded and stood up. All right. They docked the boat up on an upper turret of the stone mansion-slash-castle of Wendelin's city hall. Hewn and Sorensen stayed back by the ramp as Soma walked out onto the turret roof. The clocks told her that it was early morning, but it wasn't getting any brighter outside. This was the second to the last of the cities to receive a list from her. It had only been a few days of traveling around, but it felt like she'd been going at it nonstop for a month. Every mayor... Every city was a different problem. Wendelin's mayor, a tall and proud-looking woman named Tag, walked up to join her from a stairwell. She wore a heavy wool hooded coat that trailed on the floor. She had the hood over her head until she and Soma met halfway from the boat ramp to the stairs. She threw it back to reveal wavy gray hair and stunning eyes of the same color. Those eyes sized Soma up, who had not felt tall or proud all through this entire process. She felt even smaller right now. Aleph Dan, you have a list for me? Soma nodded and handed over the envelope containing that and the evidence summaries. Tag immediately broke the seal, opened the envelope, and pulled out the list. She frowned. I expected it to be longer. I'm not releasing the full lists yet. Tag laughed. I don't want to imagine how bad things would be right now if you had. You do know what's going on, don't you? Soma sighed. I've heard bits and pieces. Half the mayors I've met with demanded I give them permission to offer dead or alive bounties. Others are sure their cities will be turned upside down by offenders, murdering the police, and trying to wrestle control away from the government. Tag walked over to the turret's parapet. They're not waiting for your permission. I've had people come to City Hall in droves claiming to have information related to soul offenders. Some have brought people right to our doorstep, beaten and bloody. The people bringing them are sure beyond a doubt that they're offenders. Soma moved over alongside Tag. Or dealers, I imagine. She joined her in looking out over the city, which was set on a wide plateau halfway up the steep mountainside. Upward slopes bordered the northwest... Downward slopes bordered the northeast, and a river as wide as a lake bordered the south. Ah, so you do know what's going on. Some of it. I don't know yet what the numbers will say. Bad is what the numbers will say. Tag folded her arms. By now already, Hemstock has likely handed out a dozen half-bounties for dead offenders. A couple other cities are doing the same, just not making it official. Why is Hemstock so... Soma grumbled. 
I thought I was passionate about stopping soul offense, but their response has been ridiculous. Tag smiled. It's where the Aleph Inc. Writing University is located. They take Aleph laws very seriously there. It's a matter of pride and reputation. Soma shook her head. She didn't know if the Kaze members were going after those half-bounties, but hoped the pride and honor they'd shown so far would keep them from it. How do you expect your city to fare? Do you need any help from my associates? I can make sure they actually help and not make things worse. Tag held her list out in front of her, holding it over the edge of the parapet. I'm going to pace it out. Release in small chunks. That should help calm my police down and keep the bounty hunters out. If they can't pick up a bunch of quick money, maybe they'll stay away. Soma nodded. I should tell you, because I've been telling all the mayors that I think have a good head on their shoulders. The final lists have names of people in government. Because of the hardships these trials are creating, I didn't want the government bodies to take a hit right away. Tag nodded. Am I on your list? I haven't looked at all of them yet. My friend is doing all the sorting for me. It was his idea to keep me from being biased to the people I'm meeting. I should warn you. Tag's voice changed. People of affluence will be very confident that they can evade your efforts. Soma stuffed her hands in her pockets and turned back toward the Galleria. By then, I'm hoping to be a little more established. restaurant inside of a bonding agency. Vicky did a sort of half-throat-clear, half-laugh as she and Aramis walked up the steps of the narrow three-story building that looked like it should be cramped on either side by similar narrow, tall buildings. But it wasn't. It was out in a northwestern suburb of Christopher's along a winding, sparse street of businesses. Fog hung in the early morning air, nestled into the nooks and crannies between hills and buildings. Aramis followed Vicky inside, where the stuffy warm air was a welcome change from the misty cold. On one side of the room was a sandwich counter and a narrow aisleway stretched back with three tiny tables. On the other side of the room was a square area with two walls covered in little locked mailboxes and one wall having a counter. It was covered with signs exclaiming their deals on bail bonds, bounty hunter insurance, private detective bonding, travel insurance, and all sorts of ads for legal assistance from firms probably just as fancy as this place. This place that apparently had the best turkey panini in all of Maybar, according to Vicky. I thought you were from Prometheus. Vicky smiled at the comment as she sauntered up to the sandwich counter. This place is a little secret vassals and gammy try to keep from regular folks. They come here whenever they have to work in pan. It took moving mountains to get the gammy I was working with to tell me where it was. The woman behind the sandwich counter smiled and gave the rough laugh of a lifelong smoker at that comment. Vicky smiled back at her. Make mine with the spicy mustard. The woman nodded and smiled warmly at Aramis. What do you have, dear? Same, I guess. Vicky paid for both before Aramis could protest, and they sat at one of the tables. Aramis's eyes kept scanning, taking in the oddity of the place. Is it because they all come to do business at the bonding agency and they get food while they wait or something? Vicky looked hurt by the suggestion. No, it's because of the sandwiches. 
Aramis was about to clarify that she was trying to guess how it had become famous or how they had come up with the goofy idea of combining the two businesses, but decided against it. Instead, they sat there in silence until Aramis couldn't take it anymore. What do you think that Nathan guy is really up to? Vicky touched her finger to her mouth and looked over at the counter where the woman was turned away and making the sandwiches. I don't know, but we should talk about something else. Aramis opened her mouth, wanting to ask if they should move to a table further away. But then the door burst open and two exhausted men entered. One had his whole left forearm wrapped in a bandage. They went to the counter and asked for their regulars and then sat in the table at the far end of the aisle. Aramis took in a long breath and spoke in a lower voice. I don't know why people think I'm going to do anything about the current situation. You do. The guy we're not talking about does. I have no idea what I should do, that's for sure. You got the idea to help those people. You made it happen. You stuck with them through to the end and put your life on the line to protect them. All that looks good on a resume. Aramis turned and glanced at the two men as they began talking in low voices. I guess. And Vicky's eyes grew large as she stared at her. You came back instead of escaping with them. That tells me you're not interested in stopping. Yeah, but that's the question. Stopping what? One of the men at the far table, the one with the bandaged arm and much younger than his companion, raised his voice. The guy was saying, no, no, don't kill me. The bastard just walked away, let him bleed to death instead of doing the courtesy of finishing him off. Aramis glanced at them and then looked at the surface of her own table. She focused on not looking like she was eavesdropping as she watched them out of the corner of her eye. The bandaged guy's friend, a man with hard, permanently narrowed eyes, shook his head. Not a week in. Civilians taking it in the crossfire. It's a damn mixed blessing that the cities are giving half bounties on dead ones. I had to finish off this damn tax collector because he'd thrown a whole oak desk at me. He missed and hit some kid. If I'd wasted time getting close enough to take him in alive, he'd sure as shit killed half the people in the train station. Did you see the bounty on the rogue, Ta? The bandaged man lowered his head along with his voice. Vicky and Aramis looked at each other as the man said that. The two of them got very quiet as they continued. The what? You mean that oddball bounty that Alec Dan put out herself? The other nodded. A bunch of people think the guy is one of the Ta. It's the only reason such a huge bounty would be put out in the middle of all this. Vicky smirked at Aramis, giving her an I told you so look. Vicky, you and your friend's sandwiches are done. Vicky and Aramis got up and took the paninis. They sat back down and ate, which made it much easier to eavesdrop without looking awkward. The sandwich was very good. Aramis did recall once having one a little better back when she was in Sen. But that was just a hint of a memory from another life. So it could be wrong. I wish I had a deadbeat. The bandaged man leaned back in his seat. I wouldn't even sell it if it was me that caught the guy. His companion nodded. You won't get half a deadbeat if you turn him in dead, though. If he is one of the Ta, it would take an army. Aramis gestured at them with a subdued flick of her hand. Knowing how well their voices were carrying, she made sure her voice was barely audible. This is what I'm supposed to stop? Some sort of street war between rich, augmented soul offenders and bounty hunters? Vicky shrugged. You don't have to come up with a solution right away. 
Aramis sighed as she took a large bite. This whole thing was stupid. Even if she came up with an idea, nobody was going to listen to her. Everybody who might listen was now in hail anyway. Well, except maybe Phyllis and Gale. And Paul, but only because he was in Prometheus instead of Hale. Aramis hoped his transition into this new season was less depressing than hers. It took about 30 seconds for Paul to be sure the pale, golden-haired girl he was looking at was Susie. She was sitting at her desk in the area behind the front desk of Lutenia's city transit agency. She was reading something on one of the four pen readers on her desk, looking bored. He was outside in the overly warm winter air, looking in through the glass doors of the building. People in both shorts and suits walked around him as if he was just a tree in their path. It was near her lunch break, and Paul had been going over how to approach her. She had changed her hair, but that wasn't the biggest change about her. She looked older but not because she had wrinkles or anything like that. Just less young. His apprehension about meeting her was only made worse by all this, because he was sure his death was the cause of the change. He may have been carrying constant stress about the separation during the whole time he'd been gone, but he'd known he was alive. She hadn't. He watched her stand up from her desk, go somewhere out of sight, and then reappear to head for the door. She walked out, glanced in the general direction of Paul, and continued on past him. Paul felt like someone had stabbed him in the chest as her eyes bounced off of him. He looked at her hand and remembered holding it all those months ago. His body drained of all strength and energy, and his head started spinning. He debated calling out her name. She might scream in terror. Then he felt stupid for just standing there where she might have done that anyway if she'd recognized him. How was he supposed to do this? Should he send a letter to her pen reader first? Should he just get it over with, confront her, and deal with whatever freak out she was bound to have? Maybe there was no way to avoid that. She was getting further and further down the street, away from him. Transit shuttles floated down the center of the street. People walked beside them, across crosswalks, into and out of tall buildings. So many people living out their private lives. Paul was just one of many. Susie was just one of many. A man in a blue pinstripe suit walked past Paul, smelling of sulfur and fruit. Maybe strawberries. Paul watched him, frowning. This wasn't the first time this had happened, and he hadn't figured out what to do about it. Just knowing someone had committed murder, and knowing one detail about the victim, wasn't enough to just grab them and throw them into a police station. So that was another problem Paul didn't know how to fix. He had this powerful ability, but no idea how to use it. One thing at a time. He took in a deep breath and followed in the direction Susie was walking. He had an idea for how to confront her, even though it felt like a stupid one. She stopped at a food trailer parked on the side of the road and ordered. Paul stood a dozen paces off, watching out of the corner of his eye, waiting. 
She got a wrap and headed down another street, probably to the pocket park squeezed in between three large high-rises where he used to meet her for lunch. Back before... He followed, but felt so awkward at the way he was sneaking around that he didn't want to wait until she sat down to eat. He jogged, catching up, and touched her shoulder right before she stepped into the shady park. Excuse me? She turned and looked up at him. For the first time, he realized how much taller he was now than before. He hadn't had a good reference until now. Not one that mattered. She frowned at him. Her eyes pained. What? I probably look like someone you used to know. She nodded. What do you want? Um... This was as far as Paul's plan had gone. He wasn't sure what to do next, because going this far was so terrifying in his mind that he hadn't thought about what life would be after the first part. Have you heard of the Pravids? She squinted an eye and looked at the side. Fairies and nymphs living in the woods? Have you met anyone who believed they were real? She nodded and folded her arms. I need to eat my lunch. He nodded back. What if they were real? What if Pan was real? And some people, when they died, came back. Her eyes slowly grew. She drew in a deep breath and let it out slowly and loudly. That's not funny. He clenched his hands and looked at the ground. I don't know what to say. She took a half step closer to him, studying him. Then she turned and walked away, back to her office. This isn't funny. Paul remained there, looking at the ground, feeling physically empty. His arms were heavy and weak, and the air around him didn't seem to have any oxygen. But he decided in that moment to not give up. Not yet. Thanks for listening. Chapter 20 will post June 18th. If you want to show your love for the podcast, make sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever they're calling it now. And to keep up to date on this and my other projects, follow me on most of the things at A. William Wright. The World's a Maybar podcast is a production of Diamond Plate Studios and is written and performed by me, Andy Wright. Special thanks to Michael Wright of The Restitution for use of music from his album Into the Dark. You can find more of his music at therestitution.com. Have a good one, everybody. Have a good one, everybody.